So Calvary, we have a good problem these days, and that is a constant stream of new people among us. You may be one of them today. I know I met several of you before the service, but all of you may be surprised to know, to learn that we have conservative estimate, well over 300 first-time guests a year. It's probably more like five or 600, and that's great. However, There are several big challenges that make it difficult for us as a church to to welcome, include, integrate, and ultimately disciple new people in our church. One of them is familiarity and comfort, because we are comfortable with the people we already know and love. We often come to church and naturally want to hang out with them. So it's very easy for us to not even notice a stranger around us. Plus, talking to a stranger can be unpredictable, awkward, uncomfortable. So it's not necessarily something that most of us naturally want to do, even if we should. Another challenge is diversity. So you know with our church, with people from all over the world, every age, every life stage, it's a beautiful thing. Yet, we can assume that we don't have much in common with those around us. Or that we might fear, we might not get along with other people, so we can avoid them. Yet another challenge is transience. That is people moving all the time or only being here for a short period of time. Ottawa's transient, COVID's made it worse, and it can be exhausting and discouraging to to continually meet new people, only to have them up and leave in a few weeks, or months, or years. And those are real challenges, which I believe we must seek to overcome as a church family. And welcome those around us. Now, welcoming people might seem like a trivial topic to you, but I don't believe it's trivial at all. I think it's an issue of practicing Christian hospitality, pursuing the Great Commission, loving our neighbors, and even living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think welcoming other people is something that we're generally very weak in at Calvary. There is much to commend in you and the way that I've seen you treat other people around you. But we also often have blind spots here. And it's something that we are prone to decline in. So that's why I want us to look at God's word today and see this in his word together. So if you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 and 15, where we will see some of what it means to offer welcome to others as God's people. Now, if you are a newcomer today, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope you do feel very welcome. And I hope that wherever you make your church home, you can apply what you hear today. Because God's word transcends across our lives. Now, Romans, as we come to this, Romans is a wonderful, powerful letter the Apostle Paul wrote about the gospel. 
essentially how sinners can be saved by a holy God because of the, le- the love and the death of Christ. And after 11 chapters of deep theology, Paul basically goes, okay, so here is how you apply the gospel. Here how the gospel should impact your lives on a daily basis. And what we're going to read today, I suspect, is an overlooked, underemphasized aspect of applying the gospel. There are a variety of commands we're going to see in, in chapters 14 and 15 to not pass judgment on fellow believers or cause them to stumble, to pursue peace, to bear with the weak, to build one another up. But I think that the main theme that ties it all together is the idea of welcoming one another. Look with me. See how it starts. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, you might be familiar with this passage about weaker brothers. What you might not have noticed before, though, is the main command here is to welcome them. To welcome them. So, despising people or passing judgment on those with different convictions is seen as the negative opposite of offering welcome to them. Other translations say to accept other believers who might be weaker than you. This involves more than just letting people in and tolerating them. It's joyfully accepting their presence. It's warmly befriending them. It's inviting and including and involving them. And this welcome is much broader than just greeting people at church. It's welcoming people anywhere, at church, in our small groups, in our homes, welcoming them into our lives. It's really a a disposition, if you will, an outward-focused mindset focused on others instead of a self-absorbed love. And, of course, Paul focuses here on those we'd have the hardest time welcoming. Those we don't see eye to eye with. Those who we often view as inferior. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. See, stronger Christians tend to look down on people with weaker faith, and weaker Christians tend to condemn people over questionable conduct in their eyes. Now, don't take offense if you think the Bible might be calling you weak here, because we are all the weaker and stronger brothers or sisters at different times over different things. It's basically the same error that both fall into. Looking down on fellow believers. And the point is, it's very easy to exclude or divide over differences of conviction like this. 
But contrary to our natural tendencies, God's word tells us, welcome one another. Welcome them. And why? Did you see the main reason why? came at the end of verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed him. So God has taken this fellow sinner who was once far away from him, an outsider to God's people, and he's forgiven them, brought them near, and welcomed them into his family. There's the gospel for you. And if God has welcomed them, how dare we not? Like we're, we're all at different places in our faith journey. And we have many differences. But if we're saved by Jesus, it means that God is at work in each of us. And I think that's the, the message of the whole of chapter 14, actually. That we welcome others, despite our differences, as God is at work in us all. We welcome others, despite our differences, as God himself is at work in us all. And verse 4 goes on to say, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, they're not your servant. <laughs> they're God's servant. And God chooses. Like We have no right to determine who should or should not come or who should be God's servant. God chooses his people. I forget who said this, but it's so true that God's church has an open door that he opened. And it has a welcome sign above it that he hung. Not us. We'll sometimes here open our services by saying a welcome that other people have written, and it goes like this. Welcome to all who are weary and need rest. Welcome to all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness and to whoever else has come. This church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, <laughs> No matter how successful we are at welcoming people, this is what we want to be true. Because we are all weak and failed sinners whom God has welcomed through Jesus. If it was up to my sinful self, I might not want you here. But Jesus does. And thus, so do I. The rest of chapter 4 hammers this point home. And I'm not going to read every verse like I might usually do. Uh, We've got a lot to get through here. But verses 5 to 9 discuss some of the debatable issues of the day, honoring certain days above others, eating or abstaining from certain foods, all of which should be done, he says, to honor the Lord. 
And then in verse 10, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we are living under God's sight, and we will be held accountable to him for the way that we treat each other. The next section explains how if we ignore or offend others' convictions, we actually undermine love. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Oh, that raises the stakes, doesn't it? And he's saying the person who's sitting next to us is someone for whom Christ died on the cross. And if we don't love them, we could actually contribute to destroying them. This might all sound abstract to you, but let me tell you, this is so relevant for us in an era of fierce polarization and discord in our society, and sadly in the church as well. Just mention like pandemic restrictions, vaccinations, protests, things can explode. Or, like, on whatever side you're on, on whatever issue, you may consider the other side weak or failing. So listen up. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And then check out verse 19. It says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. So next time you're tempted to, to debate or fight with someone over a certain issue, run your response through this filter. Am I pursuing what makes for peace right now? Or, also, am I going to build this other person up or tear them down right now? Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food or anything else, destroy the work of God. What would the work of God refer to here? Well, the work he's doing in other people, right? And how can we destroy the work God is doing in them? By judging or condemning them, excluding them. Put another way, by not welcoming them into our community with open arms. I've been in a bit of a, a war with squirrels in my yard this summer, which they are winning. <laughs> 
At the beginning of the season, I replanted my lawn, working hard to reseed and top dress and water and fertilize some new grass. But the squirrels keep digging it up, digging up the lawn, killing the new seedlings. It's really annoying. <laughs> but on an infinitely more important level, this is saying God is working to reseed and grow new life in us. But when we are not welcoming to others, when we, are, when we judge them, when we're not loving to them, it's like we're digging up or destroying his work. Like how might a simple thing like not being welcoming destroy God's work? Well, think through maybe some scenarios. Maybe a person had to muster up all their courage just to get to church that day. And maybe they've been hurt by a church in the past, but they're willing to give it one more try. But when they show up, they're ignored. Everyone around them. And then thinking that people don't care about them in the church, they give up on church. Maybe for good. Would that damage the work God's doing in them? Well, maybe there's a person who doesn't even know Christ. Maybe rough around the edges. And the Spirit prompted them to go to church that day for whatever reason. But then instead of anyone welcoming, conversing with, or befriending them, they sense people's judgment on them as being too shabby, too smelly, too weird, too tattooed, whatever. What happens then? Do they decide to never darken the door of a church again? Worse, do they decide Jesus just isn't for them? After all, Jesus' people weren't for them. Or maybe there's a more established person in faith, but it's someone that we're at odds with, a big conflict, and just time after time, just wears them down, and their faith goes cold. <laughs> Stories like these are tragically far more common than we'd like to think. And of course, God's work can ultimately never be thwarted. But we don't want to work against him, right? We don't want to work against the Lord, so we need to learn to be welcoming like him, welcoming with him. And good news, I believe that if you are here today, God is at work in you. He's doing something in you. And that's reason enough to say that you are very, very welcome here. Author Darby Strickland says this. She says, When I have sought to lean in and love people who are not like me, it helps me to remember that my relationship with Christ is powerful and can reshape everything about me. Consequently, I can trust that he is at work shaping everything about you, too. I need this truth in front of me when God is not prioritizing the things I would like him to address with you first. <laughs> And you need this truth 
when I am difficult for you to love. But what, what happens? What if someone simply too different than you shows up? What if a, a far-right activist came? What if an extreme leftist showed up politically? What if, in the course of a conversation, you learn that someone is a drug addict or a prostitute? What if a, a certain style of sinner, maybe a, a certain kind of sexual sinner, wandered into our assemblies? What if someone new came out to your small group, but they were just plain weird? What if there's a new kid in Sunday school or at Fusion Youth that you can't stand? <laughs> Would any of these find an honest and warm welcome anyway? Would they not just hear the gospel from the front, but see the gospel in you? I hope so. I hope so. We recently studied the book of Ruth. And if you recall, Ruth was an outsider to God's people. Yet God drew her in, welcoming her, especially through Boaz. And Ian Duguid, a scholar, said, asked this, Can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our churches and in our homes? Are they places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Or are we good only at welcoming those who are already somewhat religious, those that, who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community and whose faces already fit? Each of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through our church doors. Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? Will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? Because that's the thing. They are of eternal worth and value. And out of all people, God drew them to be near you. Now, some of you might object to all this. Pastor Matt, this is... This is really hard to do. And I get it. I'm a huge introvert. I'm happy not even talking with my friends, let alone strangers or newcomers. <laughs> and like I said, it can be uncomfortable, awkward, or scary to welcome people well. However, if I approach church in this mindset, I can easily buy into a self-centered narrative. I can easily start believing, or maybe we do before this, we start believing that we go to church for ourselves, which causes major problems. We think, if I don't get anything out of a particular church service, then it was wasted. Or, I can watch church services online all the time, and that's good enough. Or even, if this church is not meeting my needs, it's time to find a new church. But that's, 
It's such a, a selfish approach to church. We're not meant to be mainly consumers. Yes, a church should feed you spiritually. Absolutely. But that's not why you should go. If we come to church to please ourselves and to feed ourselves, we miss really the main point. Like we go to church to give much more than to receive. To love more than to be loved. And I know, I, I know that there are seasons, of, especially seasons of suffering, where you just go and all you can do is receive. And that's okay. But that's the exception, not the norm. We should come to church with the thought, like, who might I get to serve today? And part of serving others, maybe the start of serving others, is offering welcome to them. Don't believe me? Look at the beginning of chapter 15 as we continue on here. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Here's the point. We welcome others for their benefit and not our own as Christ is our example. Okay, we welcome others for their benefit and not our own as Christ is our example. This is really the attitude we should have when it comes to anyone at church, old friends to newcomers, right? And if anyone is beneath us spiritually... <laughs> then we actually have an obligation. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. <laughs> really, no matter who they are, our aim should be to please them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, we shouldn't be people pleasers in the sense that we only care what they think about us. No, that would be pleasing them for our own good right? Seeking their approval for us. Neither should we seek to please them just for the sake of pleasing them. But instead, it says, for their physical, emotional, spiritual, and eternal good. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, this doesn't mean we can't ever do anything we want to do. Only that pleasing others should take precedence over our own desires. In the words of Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When it comes to church, that means seeking the good of others around us more than seeking out a good chat with a friend more than just carrying out a task in ministry. We shouldn't even just be after the good of our church, right? Trying to impress people with us. We are not recruiting people after all. As if we are in a, a competition with other churches. And we shouldn't be desperate for anyone to be a part of us. We 
should just want to be instruments in Jesus' hands to serve people for their good, whether they're with us for one hour or for the rest of their lives. We're after their good. After all, this is what Jesus did for us. He led the way in self-sacrificial love. And that's what welcoming others is, really. It's a, a pretty mild form of self-sacrifice. Look, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And why? Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's talking about when he suffered and died for us. Now you might be here today and you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, to love, to follow him. But for whatever reason, God brought you here today to hear, to, to see his love for you. How he sent his son to die for you before him being raised to new life. He didn't want to leave you as an outsider forever, alienated by your sins and your failures from you, from him. He wants you to be forgiven, brought into his family, and loved forever. And if you feel an, an urging in your heart today to, to accept his welcome, do it. Like come to him in faith. And he won't only save you from your sin, which is wonderful enough, but he will save you into an eternal welcome, into his love, into his family. We can help you if you, if you need to, if you want to take that step today. For the rest of us, though, when we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice, it should move us to action. He needs to be our example, our pattern, and our motivation. Jesus gave up his life. Are we willing to give up our preferences? Jesus went all the way to the cross to welcome us. Are we willing to cross the room for someone else? And that leads right into the final major point I want us to see today. No, this is not natural for us to be so others-focused. And it can be downright difficult. But if we have personally experienced the welcome of Christ, that should be changing us from the inside out. And our welcome of others is totally based on what he's already done for us. See, we welcome others as we have been welcomed for God's glory. We welcome others as we have been welcomed for God's glory. Verses 4 to 7 in chapter 15 spell this out. So right after quoting from the Old Testament in verse 3, that the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me, Paul says in verse 4, for, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It might not get to the flow of thought here. So this is, this is what he's saying. 
that these that uh, scripture is evidence that Christ served us, not himself. Okay? And these scriptures were written in order to instruct us and grow us in our faith. Specifically, they are meant to produce endurance and encouragement in us. And these things should instill hope in us. Well, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, that hints at another reason why we gather together, to read and hear from God's word. But we don't just gather to to receive information and fill our heads with knowledge. We gather to be instructed and fill our hearts with hope. You think hope is something we could use today? This is why our sermons, what I'm doing now, takes up a big chunk of our time together. Are we all about just teaching and instructing people? No. Teaching is the means, not the goal. The goal is to fill you with endurance, encouragement, and most of all, hope. Like, that's my sincere hope, that each Sunday you would leave more encouraged than you came, ready to to face another week in this broken world, which will demand endurance from you, and that you having your eyes fixed on Jesus again will place all your hope in him. Ultimately, this is not something that I can give you but it's something that God gives us all the time. And in verses 5 and 6, Paul breaks into a, a brief prayer. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the goal here is to glorify God, worshiping him. The the means is a God-granted unity. He calls it harmony here, a musical term. Singing different notes together. But he prays that believers would be so harmonious that it would be like we have one voice. This is a very fitting prayer to pray after discussing how different and diverse we can all be. Ephesians 4.3 says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it takes some work. We have to be eager to maintain it. But this says there's also a supernatural aspect to unity. It's something given to us by God, which is why Paul prays here, May God grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And don't miss the end goal. The the purpose of harmony or unity is doxology. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We then come to verse 7, which I think is the summary point of all we read today. So it all builds up to this with the same way that we started back in the first verse we read. It says, Therefore, welcome one another, 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So God has sent Christ to us who did not seek to please himself, but please us. God has given us his word to build up endurance, encouragement, and hope in us. God has brought us together in harmony with one voice, and it is out of all this, out of our hope and our harmony that we have in Jesus that we then welcome others. So, have you been welcomed by Christ? Did you deserve to be welcomed by Christ? No? Then you too can welcome others into your church, into your life, even when they might not seem to deserve it or be worthy of it. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul spends the rest of the passage proving from Scripture how Christ worked in history in order to save Gentiles or outsiders, bringing them into his people, all with that goal that God would be rightfully glorified for it. For example, verse 9 says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So God was glorified when Christ welcomed and received sinners, and God is likewise glorified when we sinners reach out to others with love and welcome through Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I was recently listening to a, a podcast with pastors Sam Alberry and Ray Ortland, and as they were talking about this verse, I found it really helpful. Sam Alberry explains that Paul's not just saying, hey guys, please be nice. <laughs> There's something distinctive about the welcome we're to have for one another because it's meant to be of the same species of welcome as the one Christ has shown us. So Christ welcomed us, you think, despite our sin, despite our weakness, despite our backgrounds, and we need to learn how to do the same. And it's a lot more than just greeting one another or waving or smiling or saying hello. Like, even though those are good, friendly things to do, you should do them. But you couldn't say, therefore, wave to one another as Christ has waved to you. Or, therefore, say hello to one another as Christ has said hello to you. No, Jesus did far more than that. He didn't just smile and tolerate our presence. He welcomed us, saying, as, as Ortland puts it, I want you in my reality now. paraphrase some other things they said, do you see yourself as joyfully welcomed by Jesus? Welcomed home, welcome to a family, welcome to life. Like this attitude makes a world of difference in how we approach other people. Because if we see ourselves as only forgiven by Jesus, that gets us back to neutral ground. And it means that all we'll feel obligated to do with other people is to get along with them. Like, God isn't against us anymore, so let's not be against each other anymore. But if we've also been welcomed by Jesus, 
him opening up his heart and his home to us, then that gives us something positive to echo to others around us now. Those of us who believe the gospel have no right to settle for thin and shallow relationships with one another. We are called to genuine, surprising, beautiful friendships. Now, of course, you cannot be best friends with everyone. We all have relational limits. But we can aim for solid, loving, welcoming relationships with everyone that we can. So before we close, let's get practical. How might we put this all into practice here at Calvary? Just going to give you a few ideas, all right? First of all, you could volunteer to serve on our hospitality team, or with any service team for that matter. There are plenty of needs in our church which God might move you to serve in. And doing this is a practical way for you to say that I'm here to serve, not to be served. But specifically out of this sermon, you might feel moved to help in welcoming and hospitality, greeting people, doing parking, security, bulletins, helping in the kitchen, all kinds of of possibilities. But our hospitality team is not just some PR team. No, this is a frontline gospel ministry team. So if you want to do that, you can sign up at calvarybaptistchurch.ca slash serve or with a welcome card in front of you. Second idea, embrace fellowship times as missional times. And we can all do this. You know how I've been encouraging you to take five minutes at the end of services to not just talk with your friends, but to seek out someone that you don't know? That's a very intentional way to put welcoming one another first in our priorities. There are plenty of other times for talking to your close friends here. But before and after a service, like, we're on a mission together as a church to love and care for whoever God brings across our paths. And you can actually make a long-lasting, powerful impact by doing this small thing. I still remember 22 years ago when I walked into a brand-new church youth group I remember the exact three people who went out of their way to welcome me. Long-lasting impact. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a really good, challenging post on welcoming people online. And in it, she claims this, that an alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. In times of crisis, we do strange things. We interrupt conversations. We set aside social conventions. If someone collapsed in your church building, everyone would mobilize. But every week, people walk into our gatherings for the first time and get effectively ignored. They may not know Jesus, or they may have spent years wandering from him. Their spiritual health is on the line, and a simple conversation could be the IV fluid God uses to prepare them for life-saving surgery. Eternal lives are at stake. Third, take a genuine interest in people. And this stretches the introverts. (laughs) Don't just say hi or good morning. Ask questions. Take an interest. Find out about their family, their work, 
their studies, their hobbies, or so on. Learn their name. Write it down if you need to remember it. Ray Ortland's dad taught him that when we enter a room, we enter it in one of two mindsets. Either, here I am, I'm here for you to know me, for you to take an interest in me, or there you are, I'm here to take an interest in you. You're the focus of my attention, not the other way around. Here's one key idea. When you walk away from someone after talking to them, don't just leave them by themselves. Introduce them to someone else around you, especially if you discovered some common ground they have with someone else. Right? You work in healthcare. You like sports. You're going into grade 10. You speak Arabic. You're from Brazil. You're studying poli-sci. You're, you're new on campus. You know, let me, uh, allow me to introduce you to so-and-so. You cannot carry the relational burden for everyone you meet. But we can work together as God's people to welcome well. Fourth, deliberately move towards challenging people. Don't just try to duck out of difficult conversations. As Ortland says, when we stumble into a conversation with somebody in the church that we just personally don't resonate with, that's a good indicator my heart is in that moment being stretched out to be at least a little bit more like the heart of Christ. Making my heart more like the heart of Christ? Isn't that something that we hope and pray for? Let's not avoid that. If there's anyone that you would usually try to avoid... For whatever reason, whether that be discomfort or a conflict or whatever, that's, that's probably who you should make a beeline for each week. And lastly, go beyond Sunday mornings in showing welcoming hospitality. Invite someone home for lunch after the service or brunch for this service. Invite them to join you and your friends going out to eat. Invite them to your small group this week or in a couple weeks when they get started. Welcoming doesn't stop here. And the scope of this is bigger. The, the stakes could not be any higher. The very glory of God on display among us. As it says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of of God, so that God is glorified. Like we think, where can you view the glory of God today? In creation, yes. Right? The heavens declare his glory, as does the earth, mountains and canyons and waterfalls and oceans and creatures. We can catch glimpses of his glory in other human beings created in his image. Romans 15, though, tells us one other place we can see the glory of God today. In our churches. As we welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed us, that glorifies God. It's like there's something about those seemingly small acts of selflessness that is glorious. And it displays, really, that 
what Christ cares about is most important to us now. His desires are central. His mission is vital. So therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray.